The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one, the only, the beast from the east herself. Tammy, the underdog, Underwood. Say grr, Tam. No, I would purr, but I can't purr. <laughs> oh, please, for the love of God, don't, because that's... That, Whatever. <laughs> that, that's how furry porn starts. Dude, you... <laughs> Chicka chicka meow meow. I'm so grossed out right now. Your son is just being so disgusting. Hey, in the today. back, my hear my son as soon as I make that joke, sit there and go, I can confirm. This is the same <laughs> kid who has 55 gallons of lube in his damn bedroom. And God, I think Dude, he, no, stop. He it. lives. He lives just to traumatize me. But that, and, and he sits there and he wonders why I call him just before work every day. And, yeah, before he has to go into work, and I make the worst dad jokes ever. You uh, call me and make the worst goes, dad goes, jokes why ever. Why do you do this to me? Well, this is why, because I freaking looked into your room one time, and I saw that you had like five pallets of lube. <laughs> <laughs> can't figure that stuff Dude, out. No. I don't want to either. No. Yeah, he's going to, yeah, no. He's going to put him out of business. No, he's not. <laughs> if, if he, no, I said uh, out of business. That's if you ever get a girlfriend, but we're not worried. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering which end he's using the lube on. That's just me, though. Ew! Ew! Oh, I hate you. The Fantastic Fister? I'm going to throw up. Eddie <laughs> You know I'm a visual thinker, and you know I hate that shit. You are welcome. <laughs> okay. Wait till, wait till I describe the pictures your mom have been, has been sending My me. mom does not send you pictures. She doesn't even know how to send me a picture. Oh, I know she does. she's not sending you She doesn't pictures. want to send you pictures. That's the thing. <laughs> She sends them to me. The only time we get pictures from her is if my sister's doing it. <laughs> Did you know that your mom's brack is awesome? No, it's not. I've oh, seen yeah. it. Oh, so have I. <laughs> Shut up, sicko. <laughs> Anyways. So normally we don't do these high-profile ones like Albert Fish. No, so but what do you I'm got for me? covering him today because I'm covering another one after him that was kind of associated with this one. And his is so such an old case that a lot of younger people don't know who he is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Damn, kids, get off my lawn. Get off my lawn. Put your pants dude, up. He was a freaky looking dude, if you ever see pictures of him. I've he seen a lot of pictures weird. of Albert Fish, man. And that dude there, yeah. he scares me just because he's... Yeah, he's, he scares me, he and looks I'm not like a an child. Old, he looks like an old perp. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah, he does. He looks like he should drive your chumbo van. Like, like seriously, if, if, if nobody knew about Albert Fish, and somebody yeah. said, draw me a picture... Of a uh, pedophile? Of a pedophile. You would draw <laughs> Albert Fish. You would. You would. Same, same. That's but same, see, same, same. Albert, it is. Same, same. <laughs> Albert, Fish's, Albert Fish's case is so bizarre that by the time it was all over, he not only had five monikers from the media, he had, it was determined in court that he had 11 distinct deviant sexual fetishes. That's huh. more than you. Yeah, Yeah, and some of these, it's like, oh, my God, I literally almost threw up and gagged when I was reading about them. But um, anyway, so, you know, we have covered many cases where the perpetrator had a laundry list of aliases. Remember, we covered, I think Carl Panzer was the first one that had like 10 aliases, right? He had a lot, yeah. Yeah. And then I think he was bumped into second place by Earl Leonard Nelson, who you just did a couple weeks ago. Remember him? The first... uh, Fetish killer? Right, right, right. Right. So, however, I don't think we've covered a case where the perpetrator had a laundry list of monikers given to him by the authorities, the media, and the public. 
Um, today is the case of Hamilton Howard Fish, although he did go by Albert, and I'll tell you why in a minute. He was given five different monikers over the years. He was called the Gray Man, the Werewolf of Wisteria, the Brooklyn Vampire, the Moon Maniac, and the Boogeyman. Like, literally, the Boogeyman. Um, is that because he liked a disco? No, it's because... I like the boogie. Shake my he boogie. actually abducted a child by reaching through the skylight of an apartment complex. And the kid that was with the other child said the boogeyman grabbed him. Holy shit. Like, literally, that's how he described him. He must have some long-ass arms, or they have some short ceilings. Well, it was in New York in, like, the 30s. Yeah. So, as we've seen with other serial killers in the past, there's no way to know exactly how many victims he had. The authorities believe that he murdered at least five children from July of 1924 through June of 1928. However, they were only able to confirm he was responsible for three. Here's the thing. He might have only had three victims. He might have had eight. However, at one point, he bragged about how he had children in every state. And once he said that he had around 100 victims. But when it came to the number of victims he claimed to have, he might have only been talking, he might not have been talking about just murders. He could have been referring to those he just raped and cannibalized. Yes. So he may have had eight. He may have ate them. Okay. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Dad gotcha. joke number one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or perhaps none of that is true at all. Nobody knows. Hmm. So he was born on May 19th, 1870. Hey, that's the year you were born. <laughs> As Boo, Hamilton Howard Fish. You know what my son says? I'm that old. So, And he was born in Washington, D.C. His father, Randall, was an American born of English ancestry. And his mother, Ellen Howell, was a Scots-Irish-American. So, you know, she probably had a lot of discrimination because back in that day. At the time of Albert's birth, he, his father was 75 years old. Jesus Christ. And 43 years older than his mother. Go he, damn. Yeah, Holy he cow. was the youngest of four living children. I have a hard time getting it up now sometimes with my blood sugar's off. I'm kidding. Yeah, that's but, why. <laughs> Yo, fuck. So, when I think about your mom. Ew. So he spent a great portion of his childhood in an orphanage, and I'll explain why. While he was there, he was given the nickname Ham and Eggs. In an effort to get the other children to stop calling him that, he announced that he wanted to be called Albert after one of his deceased siblings. According to reports, his family had an extensive history of documented mental illnesses. One of his uncles was diagnosed with mania or manic syndrome, which, similar to bipolar disorder, however, the person only experiences manic episodes without the subsequent depressive episodes that follow. He also had three other distant relatives who had been diagnosed with some type of mental illness. Freaking English, man. Oh, wait. That's closer to home, his mother was said to suffer from oral, or, you know, like visual hallucinations and audio hallucinations auditory yeah yeah annie his older sister had a diagnosis of mental affliction and one of his older brothers was committed to a state-funded mental institution at one point his father was a successful fertilizer manufacturer i just got to thinking which is probably just slinging manure but what that kind of reminds me of my first ex-wife's family because her mom and dad are mental are mental Oh, my mom's my mental, illness. too. No, your mom's hot. <laughs> That's oh, yeah. crazy. 
Albert's father enjoyed a career, like I said, as a successful fertilizer manufacturer. However, on October 16th, 1875, when Albert was only five years old, he was at, he, his father was at the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station when he suffered a fatal heart attack. Three days later, he was interred at the Congressional Cemetery, a historic and currently active cemetery in D.C. that's officially referred to as the Washington Parish Burial Ground. Um, and that's a, I mean, it's a huge cemetery that draws a lot of tourists, too. Um, shortly after Randall passed away, Albert's mother was having trouble making ends meet. So she sent him to live in St. John's Orphanage. According to reports, he was a frequent victim of physical abuse, although it's not clear if he was abused by the staff or the older children. Probably both. Remember Pansram? Yeah, yeah I was going to say Pansram was that same era. Yeah, it's, it's the yeah. same era. You know, and the abuse, we talked about this in, in several other shows. Oh, yeah. Where, you know, abuse during that time because it well, wasn't so regulated. Yeah, and he was a rampant. frail little child, too. So, and he kind of had big ears. It was weird. Come um, here, little boy. Let me get your big ears. ears and everything like he did as an adult. But I think that he was victimized by everybody. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. So, but he was abused so often, unlike Carl Pansram, who grew to resent it and abuse others. So he would no longer be a victim. Albert Fish started to look forward to the beatings because he started to enjoy the physical pain. No, I can, I dig that. That's, not, that's just like me. Yeah. I enjoy that. Carry on, wayward son. <laughs> well, you know, every time your mom smacks my ass. Ew! And calls you Charlie? <laughs> no, she calls me Amy. Oh, my God. <laughs> I hate you. In 1880... I want to roll the day. I don't know why. I know. In 1880, when Albert was 10 years old, his mother got a job working for the government. With secure employment, she was able to bring her child back home. However, it's apparent that his father dying when he was young and the five years he spent at the orphanage changed him forever. When he was 12 years old in 1882, he met a telegraph boy and the two developed a relationship. Reports don't indicate whether or not this relationship was sexual in, nat in nature. It's just clear that this unnamed boy was very influential on this preteen. The young boy had some rather disturbing habits. This is going to gross you out. It wasn't long before Albert was indulging in them as well. These paraphilic, which is sexually deviant, activities included urolognia or urophilia, which is deriving sexual excitement from urination. Yep. And these two enjoyed drinking it. Ew. Yeah. Oh, wait. It gets worse. Okay, because here's the thing, and it's going to sound gross, but I kind of understand the getting peed on thing. Not That's not my deal, but I, okay, it's oh, yeah. gross, but, you know, if you're in a shower, it washes off. Consuming, that's just... Yeah, Ugh. I know, right? I just, yeah, no. Uh, then his, Albert and his friend also practiced coprophagia or coprophagy, which is feces consumption. I wasn't able to find any reports that specified which of the three types they practiced. I literally just threw up a little I know, bit in my right? mouth and they... Thankfully, all I have in my stomach is coffee. Right? Ugh. But there are three types of coprophagia that people can practice. There's heterospecifics, which is consuming the feces, the feces of another species. There's allocoprophagy, allo which is consuming the feces of another person. Or autocoprophagy, which is consuming your own feces, either after it's been expelled or collected from the anus directly. You're welcome. <laughs> 
Uh, Are you mad at me? <laughs> it gonna, gets worse. I'm though. gonna set you on fire. <laughs> uh, that's so, that's ugh. isn't that gross? I, I just on. every time I wrote that, I just kept thinking about your German porn. <laughs> God dang, it makes sense. I, a lot of this is already making sense to me because you know his mom being a nutcase works for the government, and I think the government has a lot of nutcases working for him. And true uh, that, yeah. So that's, that's all making sense. So. As a teenager, Albert started practicing voyeurism. He enjoyed watching other boys as they removed their clothes. He would spend the majority of his weekends at a public bathhouse so that he could engage in this activity without arousing suspicion. But that's not... That, that's uh, not I, no, that's an extremely deviant. Nah. Right? That's actually teenage boy. Yeah, that's teenage boy, man. Yeah. And that's been teenage boy forever because every teenage boy, you know, provided their sexual orientation. Right. Uh, you know, likes... Seeing well, they, they they like seeing who they're attracted to get naked. Oh yeah, well, and not just that. Is I believe a lot of teenage boys actually like in gym class when they change, they they're curious. You know, you can't you can't not be right. Whoa, crap! What I do? Oh, I don't know. You broke something. I did not. I knocked over something. Breaking shit over there. God dang, man! You know what? I haven't broken anything yet. So he. You broke also... my heart. Shut up. Because you keep telling me that I, I hate can't you. Get Shut your mom. up. You know what? I know Joel's going to listen to this, and Joel, tell Scott right now, shut the hell up. <laughs> Just talking about Joel Balthazar, man. Great <laughs> yeah. guy, man. Love he Joel. likes listening to Scott do this crap. <laughs> <laughs> so, he pursued the classified ads and bulletins from match... Oh, he, yeah, he also pursued the classified ads and bulletins from matrimonial agencies to get the names and addresses of women so he could write obscene letters to them. <laughs> I can't go on for a second. Hang on. No, it, it, you know, guys do that now through text message. That's true. That's I mean, true. It's... I don't know how many guys I have met. You know, because with the with the onset of online dating, of course, you you text message people. You don't go to a bar and meet them. And I don't know how many guys have literally sent me a dick pic the first text message, and I'm like, "Are you for real?" I've, I've heard that from a lot of my my, my female yeah. friends. What? Or send me a tit shot? No, dude, no, I don't know you. Yeah, usually goes like this. Hi, my name is Bob. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. Boom, penis picture. I know. Like dick pic right there. One of these days, I'm gonna get one. I'm gonna go. Oh my gosh, that looks like a penis. I'm not sure though. <laughs> I, I I've always told them what you do is just send back one. You, you, two ways you can do it. Send back another penis picture and go, oh, my God, it looks a lot like mine. Oh, that's a good one. Or go, oh, my God, that's so cute. It's like a penis, only smaller. Only way smaller. <laughs> I didn't know they came in miniature. <laughs> Are you a little person? <laughs> <laughs> so, Albert, <laughs> that was can, bad. I'm so sorry, people. Can you sing me the Oompa Loompa song? No. <laughs> So, Albert moved to New York City in 1890 when he was 20 years old. Once he arrived in the new city, he started trading sexual favors for money. However, he also started raping and molesting little boys, the majority of which weren't even six years old yet. Eight years later, though, in 1898, his mother took it upon herself to find him a wife when she arranged his marriage with Anna Marie Anna Mary Hoffman. She's barking up the wrong tree. He doesn't want yeah, a wife. Exactly. He wants a, he, he wants something with a schlong. Well, and that's just it. Is Anna was only 19 years old. 
And despite the fact that he seemed to prefer having sexual relations with other men and or boys, he and Anna actually had six children together. Oh, okay. Well, maybe he's bisexual, you well, know? Well, that he, could be too. He likes a little cock. Yeah. He likes a little, you know, little, little, True. little badge. Well, Albert and Anna had only been married for five years before he was arrested in 1903 and charged with grand larceny. He was eventually eventually convicted and sentenced to serve time in Sing Sing prison, which people who don't understand larceny is just theft, you know, petty theft, basically. He later talked about another event that took place during his early adulthood. One of his male lovers took him on an excursion to a local wax museum. And they, they, the two of them came upon an exhibit featuring a realistic bisection of a man's penis. From that point forward, Albert developed an obsession for sexual mutilation. Right? Could you just imagine? Ouch. I don't even have a penis and that hurt me. I don't know why they would want, why they would get turned on by half a penis when the whole one is what does the job. Right, but he got turned on by seeing it being bisected. Or, you know, or or so I've heard because, you know, I don't, you know, want to bite the pillow or anything. Yeah, okay. <laughs> big juicy penis. <laughs> That's not what you were saying a little bit ago. <laughs> so approximately seven Don't use lube. <laughs> so ask your brother what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> so I should call I, I I should figure out how to send Phil a message because him and I just flat out don't talk. Hey. Yeah. Are you turned on by are you a pillow biter? Did you yell don't use lube? <laughs> Ew. Don't bother. (laughs) So approximately seven years after being convicted of grand larceny, Albert got a job working in Wilmington, Delaware. That's when he picked up a 19-year-old by the name of Thomas Kedden. The two went back to Albert's residence in Delaware, where they quickly developed a relationship that was sadomasochistic in nature. Reports didn't specify whether or not Thomas was forced to engage in the activities. However, when Albert was giving his confession to the authorities years later, he implied that Thomas was somewhat disabled intellectually. After spending 10 days at Albert's place engaging in sadomasochistic sexual activities, Albert took the young man to a, quote, an old farmhouse. And over the next two weeks, Albert systematically tortured Thomas after the making the man suffer for nearly 14 days, Albert bound Thomas's hands and legs before he removed half the man's penis with a knife. He later stated, I shall never forget his scream or the look he gave me. Now, when Albert initially took Thomas to the farmhouse, he had every intention of living out his newfound fantasy and obsession by murdering the 19-year-old after he was finished torturing him. However, since the weather was rather hot at the time, he was afraid the scent of decay would draw unwanted attention, so he forewent that decision. Now that murdering Thomas was off the table, Albert took some peroxide and dumped it over the man's severed genitals. Then he saturated a handkerchief with Vaseline and wrapped it around the severed stump of the man's penis. Before he left the young man, he threw $10 on the ground and kissed him on the forehead. He later said, "He, I took the first train I could get back home. Never heard what became of him or tried to find out. Jimmy, I know, right? Isn't that just like, oh, God now, dang, I'm having nightmares now. I know, me too. So, Anna left Albert for one of their boarders, a handyman by the name of John Straub in 1917. Probably because Joe Johnny there doesn't want dick. Right? 
So that's when Albert suddenly, suddenly found himself being a single parent. She did. She left him with all six of his children. You know, that reminds me of the Kenny Rogers song. You picked a fine time. Believe me, Lucille. <laughs> with six hungry children. And Never a crappie in the field. <laughs> this is what happens when I don't get hardly any sleep. My brain is just going a bajillion miles a second. So with- later, after he was arrested, he told a reporter that when Anna left, she took everything they had accumulated over the years of their marriage. It was around the same time that Anna left him, Albert began having what experts, experts refer to as auditory hallucinations. At one point, he wrapped a carpet around himself and said that he was told to do so by John the Apostle. I don't know. No, he, he, you know what? He thought he was a superhero. He was all, carpet man, carpet man, does whatever <laughs> a, a, can. a steam cleaner can. <laughs> We're horrible. So, you know, we can't take anything seriously. No. That's sad. I, I, I have to compartmentalize this. I'm just thinking about that poor kid's fucking no, I know, know, penis I know. that's just jacked. See, and I was telling somebody, too, that, you know, I can do this because I know how to compartmentalize. So around the time Albert began having these hallucinations, he also started to practice self-harm. Reports and x-rays indicate that he embedded needles in his own body, specifically his abdomen and groin area. In fact, after he was arrested, the authorities took an an x-ray of his pelvic area, and that x-ray definitively shows that he had a minimum of 29 needles stuck in his pelvis and that little piece of skin that separates the scrotum from the anus. Oh, the taint. Yeah, the taint, but it's yeah. also called something else. I can't remember. Yeah, it's called a taint. That is not that is not what it's called medically. Yeah, that's a, that's a medical term. No, it's term. not. I grew up in the medical industry. Nowhere in any medical dictionary does it say taint. <laughs> taint. You, you taint touch me there. <laughs> <laughs> taint touch you there. Where's my parachute pants? Albert <laughs> also punished himself by using a nail-studded paddle to strike reachable parts of his body. But that's not uncommon. No, that's, that's not uncommon either. I mean, if, if, if you look at like Opus Day, oh, exactly. that's been going on since the like yeah. the freaking what like the fourteen uh, hundreds. Yeah, but you're gonna. This is what's gonna like really like make your literally make your butthole pucker. Reports also indicate that he was even known to insert some wool into his anus that had been saturated in lighter fluid. Did it pucker? Uh, that, that that's no. Uh, whew, I can't, I'm trying to make a joke with this one, but just carry on. I know. Why, damn. I'm telling you, there aren't any reports that indicate Albert physically or sexually abused his children. However, some reports say that he did encourage them, as well as their friends, to paddle him with that nail-studded paddle. The same one that he used to punish himself. Now, approximately nine years after Albert mutilated Thomas in the farmhouse in 1919, he was in Georgetown when he stabbed another boy who was also disabled intellectually. He told the authorities later that he chose his victims carefully during that time. He only targeted, and we've talked about this before, black people and people who were considered mentally or intellectually disabled. According to him, if these people were killed, it was least likely they would be missed. And that's true, you know. Yeah. That's that's very true, because especially given that time there, the retards and the blacks, nobody gave a crap. Exactly. You know, I mean, honestly. Well, we talked about it with your Charlie Topoff episode. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because that was around this same time, too, where African-American children in New York were targeted, you know. 
Yeah, no, and, totes. Yeah, and it turns out that Albert Fish and Dean Coral, remember Dean Coral, the candy man who had the two yes. Hinks, Hinkley and Brooks? Yes. Okay. Um, they had a lot, of, a lot in common, decades between each other. Coral paid his two accomplices to procure victims for him. Reports indicate that Albert also paid boys to seek out other children for his pleasure. Jesus Christ, yeah. man. Once he had the young children in his hands, he would set about mutilating and torturing them with his preferred, and he, this is his quote, he called them his implements of hell. His go-to tools included a butcher knife, a handsaw, a small handsaw, and a meat cleaver. After Albert had exhausted his pleasure with the torture process, he used those same weapons to murder his victims. Now, the first known victim, Albert was in Stanton Island, New York, when he came across a farm on July 11, 1924, and discovered an, eight, an eight-year-old girl by the name of Beatrice Keel playing by herself outside. Thinking that he would make her another victim, he told her if she went with him to look for rhubarb, he would pay her for her help. Now, she agreed, and right before they could leave the farm, her mother came outside and ran Albert off the property. Although he ran off, he circled back later that evening and snuck into their barn because he needed someplace to sleep. That didn't work out for him either, as her father found him there and forced him off the property again. He never tried to target Beatrice, Beatrice again. However, three days after that, while he was still on Stanton Island, Albert murdered little Francis McDowell, McDonnell, which we'll talk about in a little bit. I wonder Probably if Francis was related to Ronald. Probably not. I think I talk about, yeah, I talk about Francis next. Ronald McDonald. Next episode. McDonald, not Donald. Weirdo. Close enough. <laughs> the same year that 54-year-old Albert targeted Beatrice and murdered Francis, he experienced his first documented episode of psychosis or a psychotic break. He said that was when he heard the voice of God ordering him to, quote, torture and sexually mutilate children. Right? Ugh. So... Right before Albert abducted Grace Budd, who we'll talk about in a minute as well, he tried to execute a practice run using his implements of hell. His target was a local child named Cyril Quinn, who he had been molesting for some time. Um, although he felt he had a well-planned agenda, his attempt failed, and here's how the events went down that day. Early in the day, Albert noticed Cyril and his friend on the sidewalk playing a game of box ball, which is more commonly known childhood game of Foursquare. He asked the boys if they'd had a chance to eat lunch yet, to which they responded they hadn't. So Albert took the opportunity to invite them over to his place so they could eat some sandwiches. Well, what, like the barn? Because he was hiding out in the mm, barn five seconds no, ago. This was before, this was a couple years later. After, oh. yeah. Okay. Two years later. Yeah. Anyway, so Albert was in the kitchen preparing the sandwiches, and the boys started wrestling around on his bed. At some point, the mattress shifted, and they saw the small handsaw knife and meat cleaver hidden underneath. The sight scared the hell out of them, and they ran out of the apartment. Now, even though Anna had left Albert for another man, the two were never officially divorced, even though she did marry John Straub later, I found out. Dang, dang yeah. polygamist. I know. So on February 6, 1930, while he was still married to Anna, he actually married another woman named Estella Wilcox in Waterloo, New York. She had one daughter from her previous marriage, Nina E. Now, Albert's marriage to Estella was very short-lived. Within a week, they were divorced. 
Three months after Albert and Estella divorced in May 1930, he was arrested again. This time he was accused of, quote, sending an obscene letter to a woman who answered an advertisement for a maid. The following... Dear Margaret, your bloomers really arouse my loins. <laughs> You're so stupid. So the following year, 1931, he was actually admitted to the Bellevue Hospital under observation. Now, records also indicate that the same year he married and divorced Estella, he married another woman by the name of Murda Luella McGrew Nicholas. Yes, Gee, God. what the hell? Wait, check this out. Although I couldn't find any record of if and when the two were divorced, I was able to determine that she had been married prior to that. So when her first husband, Milo Nichols, she had six children with him, right? Damn, I wonder if they knew how that shit happens. Well, Murda di- didn't die until October 2nd of 1983. She was 101 years old. Damn, go girl. I know. I mean, you missed out. No kidding, man. Super vagina power going on there. So three years before Albert was admitted to Bellevue, on May 25th, 1928, he was per- he was perusing the Sunday issue. Now, this is the crime that actually put his name on the map and got him arrested. Okay? Um, and yeah, uh, three years before Albert was admitted to Bellevue on May 25th, 1928, he was pursuing the Sunday issue of New York world when he happened to come across an ad that caught his attention. It said young man, 18 wishes position in country, Edward Bud 406 West 15th street. And that's when he began his plans. A couple days later, on May 28th, 58-year-old Albert went to Manhattan to visit the Bud family. His ruse was to hire Edward to work for him. However, I'm sure you can already guess that that was not his true intentions. No. Albert later told the authorities what he really had planned. He wanted to get Edward alone, bind his hands and feet, and torture and mutilate him, then leave him somewhere to bleed to death. I'm thinking you, me, some candlelight, and this meat cleaver. And no. my handsaw. And my handsaw. And my butcher's knife. Yeah. No, it's a little no, romantic no, no. evening. You want a sandwich? Yeah. So when Albert arrived at the Bud House, he told them that his name was Frank Howard and that he had a farm in Farmingdale, New York. He told Mr. and Mrs. Bud that he would hire both their son, Edward, and his friend, Willie, to help out on this farm. And a wet Willie he was. <laughs> and as he left, he said he would return in a few days to pick them up. On the day he was supposed to get the boys, Albert never showed up. Instead, he sent a telegram to the Buds in which he apologized for not being able to make it. However, he did make arrangements to come at a later date. It was during his return visit that Albert was introduced to Edward's sister, 10-year-old Grace. As soon as he saw her, his nefarious intentions were shifted from the older teenager to the younger girl. Thinking quickly, he concocted a story saying his niece was having a birthday party And he forgot that he said he'd make an appearance. Before he left, he asked Albert Budd, the first, and Delia Flanagan, Grace's parents, if he could take her to the party with him. He must have seemed harmless and was very convincing because they allowed her to go. Now, rather than take Grace to the little girl's birthday party, he took her to an abandoned house, and it was just called Wisteria Cottage, located in the East Irvington area of Irvington, New York. Located at 359 Mountain Road. And I found out, I think that house is still standing. He built them better back then. Yeah. Albert didn't just stumble upon this house that day. He had planned well in advance to take his next victim there to kill them. Once Albert and and Grace arrived at Wisteria Cottage. Thank you. Um... 
he killed the girl, then consumed her flesh. God dang, talk about yeah. eating out. Yeah, no doubt, yo. That's, that, that was a horrible that joke. That was a horrible joke. Considering she's only like 10. Yes. Now, um, on September 5th, 1930, the authorities made an arrest in this case. Their suspect was a 66-year-old superintendent named Charles Edward Pope. Charles became the prime suspect when his estranged wife called the police, accusing him of being responsible for Grace's disappearance two years before. Charles was in jail for 108 days before his trial began on December 22nd. He wasn't released until the jury found him not guilty at the end of the proceedings. Now, oh, yeah, just don't go. Um, Charles, oh, I already read that. Now, the disappearance of 10-year-old Grace Budd remained unsolved for four years. Sometime in November of 1934, the Budd family received an anonymous letter addressed to Mrs. Budd. However, she was illiterate and unable to read, so she had to have Edward, her son, read it to her. And this is what it said, grammatical errors and all. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, this, we're almost done with this episode. But it said, um, Dear Mrs. Budd, In 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At the time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from $1 to $3 a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under 12 were sold to the butchers to be cut up and sold for food in order to keep others from starving. Mm, Tender and juicy. Yeah. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You, You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body and sold as veal cutlets, brought the highest price. John stayed there as so long he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven, took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them in the closet, then burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night, he spanked them, tortured them to make their meat good and tender. And this, I was just, ugh. First, he killed the 11-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass and, of course, the most meat on it. (laughs) Big old fat ass. Yeah. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten except the head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, all of his ass boiled, broiled, fried, and stewed. His whole ass. (laughs) Yeah. The little boy was next, went the same way. At the time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street near right side. He told me so, so often how good human flesh was, I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street, bought you, brought you pot cheese and strawberries, which is cream. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her on the pretense of taking her to a party. You said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped off all my clothes. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in the closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and turned to run down the stairs. I grabbed her and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked. How she did kick, bite, and scratch. I choked her to death, then cut her in small pieces so I could take my meat to my rooms, cook, and eat it. 
how sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though. I could have had I wished, but she died a virgin. Oh, my God. That's jacked. Isn't that jacked up? Now, when the authorities investigated the details in this letter, there were some details they couldn't confirm. For instance, they were never able to confirm whether the story Albert told about Captain Davis and the Hong Kong famine was true. Although they did were able to confirm the details of Grace's kidnapping. They weren't able to positively confirm whether he, his claim that he had consumed her flesh was true. Now, the authorities scrutinized every inch of that letter in an effort to find any details that would lead them to the person who wrote it. They noticed the envelope had a small, extinguishable hexagonal emblem on it with the letters NYPCBA, which stood for the New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. Now, when detectives contacted the association, they spoke to a janitor who was able to give them their first good lead. He said he did take a little of the company um, letterhead with him home to his address at 200 East 52nd Street. However, he had moved since and left the stationery behind. That address led the authorities to a boarding house. They spoke to the landlady and discovered that Albert had rented the room, but he had checked out a few days before that. However, the good news is that Albert's son had sent him a check, which the man had asked her to hold for him. So the chief investigator, William F. King, decided to stake out the rooming house until Albert returned. It wasn't long before Albert came walking up the street toward his old residence. King asked him to go down to the police headquarters so they could ask him some questions, to which he agreed. However, but before they could get him in the car, he pulled out a razor blade. And King managed to wrestle the razor out of his hand before he could cause any damage. Then Albert was hauled down to the station. Now, when the investigators were questioning Albert about the disappearance, uh, he didn't bother to attempt to evade the truth. He came right out and told them that he first went to the Bud House. His true intention was to murder her older brother. However, he also told them that, quote, it never even entered his head to rape Grace. But when he spoke to his attorney later, he provided a few more details about her murder. He said that when he had to kneel into the girl's chest to strangle her to death, he had two involuntary ejaculations. Too many Christmas. Yeah. The prosecutor learned about that information. So when it came time for the trial, he was able to argue that Albert was sexually motivated when he kidnapped Grace. And with that argument, the prosecutor was able to avoid mentioning anything about how he had cannibalized her as well. So... That is where I'm going to end for today, and then I'll get into the rest of his story next time. But, yeah, isn't that gross? I'm still thinking about half a penis. I'm still thinking nobody brought me pepper. I know. Sad life, huh? It is. All right, boys and girls, remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. This show's copyrighted 2023. By Twisted Blue, LLC. All rights are reserved, and we will see you guys later on. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.